planets, puppet masters almost surely have a plan. Clearly there is something there beyond the realm of man. And until we've thoroughly tested every last close chested view, find the more you think you know, the less you really do. Where would we be without THC? Cause we know the lion to us just don't know to what degree. Where would we be without THC? High side chat show, Greco Wood and Company. Rock me like a hurricane, dear listeners from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood, and I think we've all been wading through these conspiratorial waters long enough to know that the MKUltra program goes deeper and ran a lot longer than any official narrative is going to admit. And it's also logical to assume that even beyond the university-fronted CIA operation, the techniques of traumatizing, abusing, and fracturing individuals are probably getting plenty of use elsewhere along the dark underbelly of the beast system with programmers being as plentiful as stage hypnotists if you're plugged into the nefarious network. Some even say the principles of such programs have been broadly mainstreamed to fine-tune their manipulation of the masses, with modern technologies from the standard smartphone to directed energy weapons making it just that much easier. Well, today we are welcoming back Elisa E., who was with us way back on episode 77 in 2013, she is a survivor of MK Ultra programming, born in New Jersey in 1962. Her books, Our Life Beyond MK Ultra 1 and 2, are considered staples in this area, and they've recently been combined and re-released with her latest insights and research added along the way in what very well may be the deepest and most detailed book yet written on the experience of and recovery from trauma-based programming by someone who experienced it all firsthand. So let's get into it. The trauma-based mind control survivor and thriver, Elisa E., welcome back. Well, Greg, thank you so much. I love your introduction. You pretty much cover the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to get them worked up when you're covering really weird, off-the-radar topics from week to week. Right. And I'm glad we could do this again. Shout out to Ron Patton, who we don't have with us this time, but it seems like we are also setting a record for a returning guest with the biggest gap in appearances, basically a decade, and what a decade it has been. But to remind the people of at least the cliff notes of your story, you remember this sort of abuse as your earliest memories, and through all this trauma and abuse, as we've heard, it creates fracturing of a person's personality or alters, and much of the memories and experiences that you have been able to recall and have presented, like these are things that are presented to you by these alters that come up internally and then they show you what they experienced in a sense. Is that right? That sounds very accurate, yes. It wasn't until I was able to engage them, internally obviously, that I began to really understand and be able to piece this thing together. Literally hundreds of memory fragments and they're fragmented. It's not even like a movie. It doesn't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's bits and pieces. And over time, if you record things, you start to form an amazing story and picture. Mm. And last time you told us that because this started so early in your life, you feel like your birth was actually a part of the program itself, which is really sad. But of course, I think this sort of farming goes on at the deepest levels. But you've also gone through more and more deprogramming and continued to process a lot of these fractured memories. 
What can you tell people listening about the early childhood programming days? What techniques do you remember being used? And what are some of the things in this area that you have more clarity on now than you did 10 years ago? Well, you know, that's a variety of traumas. Even torture was utilized. A lot of sexual abuse. The sexual aspect seems to be crucial. As a matter of fact, I'd go so far as to say that if you are a mind control victim from youth, you've been sexually abused, possibly sodomized, most likely sodomized. So that area was really important. It has something to do with the energy of that sexual energy. And then, you know, one of the most interesting things that I began to understand with time was the programming that takes place in the astral. And of course, this is the nighttime, because in early deprogramming, they were accessing me constantly at night. And I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I had a little hand recorder, and I would just record these fragments. Nothing seemed to make a lot of sense. But over time, I put together this picture by bringing in the spiritual aspect of this. You know, I'm one who proclaims that there are entities involved in this, and without them, the programming wouldn't hold, it wouldn't stay in place. You know, we have two things, we have conditioning and we have programming. Those are two very different things in my mind. Like on the global scale, we're currently being heavily, heavily conditioned. We've always been conditioned, but it's, as we know in the last few years, they really amped it up. But the programming aspect, it goes beyond just conditioning. To me, conditioning still allows us to have a choice. When you're MKUltra, what we refer to as MKUltra, when you're actually mind-controlled, a concerted effort is made to mind-control you, at some point, if it's successful, you lose choice until something in the spirit is able to rise up, which is why I believe a lot of victims you know, wake up years later. So for me, over the last 10 years, really what I've discovered is the spiritual aspect of this and the astral, which is currently being attacked over the human species extensively. They understand this and they're working in remotely, even in dream time. So I encountered very particular beings. I could name them, their characteristics, their abilities, and they were a significant part coming from the dark side a part of maintaining my programming and even installing it, along with the technological, hands-on human aspect. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, the entities thing is super interesting. I think in our first interview, you used the term hybrid to describe yourself, but I think you've amended that to say yeah. that you don't exactly consider yourself a hybrid, but you have had lifelong experiences with entities, and a lot of this ritual programming was to tie you or bind you to entities like Sorat and the biblical Cain? I don't know if there are more to name or describe, but tell us about this a little bit. Well, I found my way through a friend, Ilana Freeland. You probably know who she is. I, I don't know if you... Sure. Yeah. When she read my initial books, the two original books, I believe she saw experiences. I didn't have the language, much like with mind control. I didn't have the language of mind control. I would use phrases back then, like they were putting things in my mind and taking things out, right? Well, I didn't have the spiritual language either. I didn't understand the technology. I didn't understand the remote technologies. I didn't understand the entity aspect. 
And what happened was over time, my interaction with her, I would call her or write her emails and explain a memory or experiences. And it was really fascinating because I had gone to, I guess I would call it the fundamental Christian community, which was extremely helpful, by the way, because they believed in the demonic. They were one of the few groups that actually did. But I would always kind of hit a wall where it felt like their explanation or the names of beings and so forth on the dark side didn't quite add up for me. And this led me into a lot of the spiritual science work, which is Rudolf Steiner and other anthroposophists. And when I started stumbling upon that material, I honestly felt like this information was explaining a lot of the characters that were in my purview. And so, yes, there's just the basics. A lot of the beings that I can name are Lilith, Cain, Lucifer. I had experiences with an altar that referred to Satan, which would be the Ariman in the spiritual science. And then there's this really awful character named Sorat. And back then, for me, what it was back then was everything. I was so scared. I was so terrified. I was on adrenaline overload all the time, 24-7. And everything was really black and white for me. And what has transitioned over the years is there's a lot of gray area. So these characters like Ariman and Lucifer, we'll say, those for me are two different characters. Whereas in a lot of what I would call exoteric Christianity, it's more of one character. And for me, there were very distinct beings. And those beings, this is my limited novice understanding, but based in experience and what I've learned so far, those two beings, the Ariman and the Lucifer, are part of our earthly evolution. The middle way, the balancing factor between those two is the Christ impulse, the Christ. So it's more of a, I call it an esoteric Christianity, more of an occulted version. And then there's this character, Sorat, who my understanding is, based on my experience, and I'm still trying to find my way through spiritual science, but my experience is this guy's, he's not part of this deal. He's outside of that earthly evolution. And I was apparently, it took me years to realize this particular experience that I was wed to this being. And I don't know that he was actually physically present. There was this massive statue. It was actually magnificent. It was beautiful. And I was wed to it. And I would discover years later, I have three tattoos on my body that are associated with my programming. And I would discover that the tattoo on my right shoulder, within the tattoo, it's a Chinese symbol, but within the tattoo, I would discover upon studying Surat in spiritual science that Rudolf Steiner had drawn just a little sketch of the symbol of him. And I see it inside the Chinese symbol in my tattoo. And it, there were several events in deep deprogramming that led me to more information about him, what he is, and my relationship to that. Obviously, all those bindings and oaths and being wed and so forth have been broken since. But I've come to understand that this being does play 
influential role in our world, what's taking place here. I would term it, whether I'm totally accurate or not, my personal term of this would be that he utilizes Lucifer, Ariman, and the Asuras to gain ground here. I think of him as the one that's hidden from view, kind of like we look at intelligence agencies and having various front organizations and so forth, kind of like the black magicians also of our world that people don't know who they are. They have front men, you know, layers and layers. And that's kind of how I see this Sorat being. So it took me several years of deprogramming to realize that some of my main programmers were these beings and that the people that were working on me, I look at them as minions and I don't care how high up they go. They're the human minions to these variety of beings. Mm. Wow, that is really fascinating because I'm always trying to get at the relationship between the elite or the occultists and these beings. Some people presented as if they really don't know what they're messing with. They're just trying to discover things. Others talk about it like it's a fully fledged relationship and a fully fledged binding and that there are benefits on each side. What do you think about that? I mean, when these people are engaged in occult activities, are they fully aware of what they're doing? Do you think these beings just kind of ride the elite in a sense or is it a, a true relationship that both are conscious of? I think it's both in different cases. I think the higher you go, fully complicit, fully aware. But I also think, and this doesn't condone or excuse anybody's behavior, but I also think a lot of the people are literally mind controlled. And whether they've ever been in a facility or not is irrelevant to me. These beings have been controlling and influencing humanity for eons. And if you're in these high level family bloodline, what we call bloodline families, a lot of them are raised basically in cultish mind control. And this is what they do. And I do think there are a lot of people that have no idea in the lower levels what they're really dealing with. What I'd like to do is read something that's very pertinent to this question. Sure. And this was by Alana Freeland. It was a Facebook post back in January of 2020. And I said, man, I want to use this. And she said, go for it, because it really sums up what we're talking about. And she posted this after she had listened to this Dutch victim that had done that international tribunal they were doing, you know, the ITCCS for a while. Mm -hmm. And she can't remember the name of the person, but it motivated her to post this. And this is her quote. Satanic rites bind top global elites to the will of an egregore used by a force that is inimical to humanity, as it has been for millions of years. An evolving consciousness responsible for its free will. This egregore and the force it serves intend to contain the human spirit in matter. IA run brain computer interface as an example so it can be utterly controlled. The blood sacrifices serve two purposes, to feed this force and terrify minions into absolute submission. Royalty able to survive the centuries have submitted. Otherwise, their bloodline would be eliminated and another take its place. 
Thus we see how the past still dominates. The freedom of true individuality on the earth is a long haul of many lifetimes. Hmm. So, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the term egregore. Sure. And I see small examples. I move around a lot. I'm not stationary. I have a, a rather unique way of surviving all this. And I've stayed in other people's places and on other properties. And there's been cases where I've it took me time to recognize that I was under an egregore, a small version of an egregore on certain properties because of the dynamic of the people that lived there. I would notice this when I would leave. I would get in my car and just drive into town and I would feel a release. And it took a pattern of these for me to recognize that this was a pattern that at the place, as wonderful as it was, I could feel this heaviness, this energy that was influencing me in a negative way. And now think about the possibility of the size and magnitude of the egregores on a, a state level, a national level, a global level. And I see that that's what we're dealing with in the general populace. And then with these families, they're beholden to these things. These are the things that allow their families to hold the positions and do and influence and control the things that they do. And like she said, you know, you don't pay homage, we'll just replace you. And this has always been my version of it is, I don't care how so-called high level you are, if you're not the God being and you're a human being, you're expendable, hmm. period. Yeah, well, when you put it that way, it sounds like a kind of unwinnable situation. Once these egregores have gotten their claws into the global population, it seems hard to unravel. I guess, would the solution be to create a positively oriented egregore and try to generate enough power that it could rise to that level? I mean, what do you think? It just sounds like we're kind of screwed. Well, I'm actually, an it doesn't sound like it so far. I'm an extremely hopeful and faithful person. What I understand is there are forces that are actually more powerful on the right side, the good side. But things are so far out of balance and it really is consciousness of the individual that is the game changer. Meaning in my own experience, what I've noticed is when I tried to address things on a physical material level, like when my consciousness really resided there, I hit a wall finally that said, they're always going to outgun me. In the physical, you don't stand a chance as far as winning against them. But when you move into a, a more inner life, a more spirit-based consciousness, and that you know requires not just rainbows and unicorns, that doesn't work. It's a deep dive. It's a personal, you know, I always tell people, do not be afraid to face absolutely anything inside yourself. You have to be willing to let the foundation of everything you thought you knew or who you thought you were, you need to let it drop away many times over. That's what happens in this process. But the reward on the other side of that is there are things that will open, things that you will begin to see and understand that have been occulted from us. They've been hidden for so long. The symbols, the language, the understanding of our, what I would call our true history, our true present situation, 
and our potential future, which can go either way for many, many people. And I believe, Greg, that we are at that point. And so, you know, unity is a magnificent thing, having a, an organization and movement. But my opinion is that we are at a time that if the individual doesn't take this on full on, then the unity part is kind of a half mast. It's not powerful enough. And I think that's where we are. And according to spiritual science, we're in what he calls the consciousness soul. And that to me, if I were to define it my own way, is this is about facing it all, good, bad, and indifferent, and not becoming emotional and upset about everything or, or hiding our face, you know, our heads in the sand. It's about really deep diving on a personal level, but not getting, I'm not talking about getting caught up in me, 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 you know, therapy. I'm talking about understanding humanity. I'm attempting to understand the cosmology that we're truly based in, that we're living in. And I believe this is the beginning of that opportunity. I believe that the level of darkness on a global scale is actually an opportunity. Mm. Um, we have to pick it up and go with it. And in that, you know, he refers to, Rudolf Steiner refers to Christ as the Christ impulse. And these various beings, dark and wonderful, benevolent beings, are impulsing at certain times in our history, in our present, and it will be again in our future. So these things are available to us, but without our deep dive and understanding, we stay in a, what I would call kind of a, an unconscious state, which is what the power elite are attempting to continue to propagate and reinforce. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Wise words. It's definitely deep stuff to try to unpack. And for people who might want a little more of the background, do you recall much about your programmers or the locations where this sort of stuff was done to you? Was this part of the official CIA program or a rogue network just utilizing the same techniques? Right. I have a memory of a lot of places. I have quite a long list in the book. There's some other countries as well as the U.S. I was never really other than a few, I was never really able to say, you know, like it was this place right here and that you can call it this name. For example, I had one, like I know I was on MacDill Air Force Base in Florida for many years ago when I was younger, have a very significant programming memory there, splitting and programming. And then, for example, I know there was a place outside of Tucson and I'm not sure if that was above ground or underground and it would take years I heard, I don't know if you've ever heard of Chauncey Holt. No. Okay. Well, he was one of the tramps at the JFK assassination in 63. And he got cancer. This was years ago. This was probably 10 years ago that I saw the video. I can't believe I got rid of it. I had it on a disc, a DVD. And he got cancer. And a couple of weeks before he died, he did a full confessional. And he was the one that validated that there was this CIA training base outside of Tucson somewhere. Again, I don't know if it was above ground or underground. I know I've been in several underground facilities. I can't tell you exactly where they are. I know what state and what region they're in. In one case in New Mexico here where I am right now, I escaped from a facility and they came and retrieved me 
And I believe that that was, believe it or not, I thought it was a physical experience. And I believe it was actually an astral experience that I had somehow escaped astrally and they retrieved me. So yeah, there's a long list. As far as naming people, I have in the books, I'm really grateful for these publishers, by the way, that allowed me to redo the book, the two books into one, and it allowed me to put the collages in color, which really does them justice. The first books, it was pretty bad. They were black and white, and you really couldn't make things out. So I have several collages. That's what I'll say. I have several collages in there with a lot of faces that a lot of people would recognize. I won't go into naming individuals. I was utilized at least by two branches of the military, Naval and Air Force, because I was on MacDill, which is an Air Force base. The ONI, the Naval Intelligence, is very significant in my history, all the way back to three years old back up in New Jersey. And I found out in subsequent years that a lot of MKUltras have named naval individuals and bases. So they were a very significant part of the early days. But my father was a pedophile. And so I don't view him as actually doing official programming, like the science of it. He was just an abuser that set me up for a lot of things. My earliest memory was as an infant, which I relived in adulthood. I was pre-verbal, so my, my airway was being blocked. And then after that, it goes like at three years old, and then I start remembering things at like five and six and on up. So it's bits and pieces still. I don't really try to get in there and delve into. I've got literally hundreds thus far. But every once in a while, once in a great while, something makes sense that didn't make full sense before. It's like an aha of why that event took place or why that person was involved. But it's very, what I really would like to stress is it's super organized. And like in the US, the intelligence agencies are definitely involved. And yes, I was directly involved with CIA. I was utilized by the very highest levels of the Mormon church. And I was not raised Mormon. So I think I was farmed out from the CIA or the FBI to the Mormon church. I think that's where that connection came in. I do recall being approached by many, many years ago <laughs> when I was with one of my handlers at a bar. And he was running a lot of drugs and women and so forth. This was in Florida. Maybe even arms. I'm not sure. But he went to the bathroom and I had a suit, you know, a typical suit come up and start trying to warn me about this guy. And of course, I was oblivious to what was going on. But they started, I'd noticed that somebody started coming after him. And I don't recall, I have no memory of how that relationship ended or, you know, if anything legal took place with him. But he was a pretty big drug runner, prostitution in a, a tri-county area in Florida. From what I understand, it's pretty much every branch of the military has been involved and pretty much every intelligence agency has had their foot in the game. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And it lines up with what I typically hear. And in the 10 years since we have spoken, there's been a lot of things where these kind of events, they brush up against this stuff. Like, of course, the Jeffrey Epstein story. 
And even Steven Paddock, the Las Vegas shooter, there's a lot of weird stuff about him. And as people started to dig, not only did the shooting seem odd that maybe it came from a different place altogether, but he just seemed to be placed there. Like he has a weird background, but he says he was just a just a gambler and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It seems more likely that he was uh, a drug runner. He worked for the company that made the O-ring for the Challenger. He shot at Janet Airlines first before this thing happened. It seems like maybe some people who are in this nexus, they start to react or lash out or something, and then they get patsied and put into uh, a mass shooting situation and targeted as the the culprit. I don't know, but when you saw something like the Stephen Paddock situation, did did your own experiences give you any insight into what his background might have been or these types of characters? Well, yeah. I mean, to me, all of these guys and women are at the very least targeted remotely, if not MKUltra at all the way. And I do see, you know, a bit of a difference between the two, although they're meshing together. For example, let me kind of background before I get fully into that. I was MKUltra'd from birth, if not at conception, which you were right about that. They do like to breed certain bloodlines for potentials. That's the way I would put it. But I transitioned into remote technologies. And, and my memories suggest as early as the late 70s and early 80s that I was being remotely switched so I didn't have to have a handler present. So, yeah, absolutely. All of these. I mean, we can go back to Sirhan Sirhan and David Chapman. And I mean, these guys, this was in the works back then. So as far as in the last, say, 10 years or more, I see all of these, all of these characters as potential MKUltra victims, targeted individuals, and like you're saying, program breakdown, you know, glitches in the program, things are starting to bleed through. And as an example, yes, James Holmes, prior to him, I did a whole article and talked to people about my programming with the Dark Knight and how it set me off when I went. I was obsessed and programmed to go see Christian Bale movies, for one. And of course, he did the Batman Dark Knight series. And I mean, absolutely obsessed with them. I purchased the DVDs a lot like Catcher in the Rye of old days where you see it and you want to buy it. And I was awake enough that every time I saw it, I would try to tell myself, don't buy another copy because you don't need it. You know what's going on. You know, you know what this is. And then James Holmes incident in the theater with The Dark Knight took place after I had talked about it. So to me, all of these unfortunate events and I feel tremendous compassion for the individuals involved. And what was the guy on the naval base that even put EMP weapon on his mm. um, his automatic weapon that he had? He had etched EMP, electromagnetic pulse, on the weapon itself. So they're trying, and I see this in many areas, not only the shooters, but in many areas where you can see the programming is breaking down 
and they're trying to find a way to express nobody believes them if they are talking to anybody. And I know exactly how that feels. It becomes frantic and you are, you believe you're going to die any moment. I lived that for a long time. I just, it felt like I could die any day now. So you would take these big risks and do these crazy things because it almost seemed like it didn't matter. You had to find a solution. Mm. So I don't know a lot about that particular Las Vegas story. I know the basics. So I don't really know a tremendous amount about his background. But it seems to me that what I do know that it was something that just went awry again. And that feeds the agenda, as we know, for the powers that were attempting to really, you know, crack down on weapons and gun control and so forth. Right, right. Yeah, it's just like, all of a sudden, an event happens, we hear about this person, and then the conspiracy researchers start digging, and their backgrounds don't really add up. They check a lot of the same boxes as if these people are kind of archetypes in a way that they're just part of some system that is hidden from the rest of us. And to talk a little bit more about your utilization, last time we talked about how you would be assigned a target and put into a scenario where you'd perform for them sexually, and then an assassination program would be triggered. Can you walk us through a, a typical scenario? How did you get close to these targets? How did your interactions progress? And how did that final deed typically get done? Right. Well, what I discovered, the pattern I discovered over time was most of the faces were unknowns. In other words, they weren't famous people, to my knowledge. And I saw this pattern of me entertaining what I would say were actually people in the network. So they were already privy to the fact that, you know, I was a mind control victim in some cases. And in other cases, I don't think they did know. And if they did know, they didn't know what else my programming held. So most of the cases, aside from a couple, one involving Danny Glover as a victim, not as a perpetrator, as a potential victim, which obviously never took place, thank God. But outside of that, most of the men that I remember weren't famous people. And I discovered that the reason I was able to gain access was because I was this young, attractive, you know, suntan blonde Florida girl. And these guys were usually older than me. And it was a sexual encounter that would, you know, obviously put their guard down. Even if they were network individuals, they didn't necessarily know that they were on a hit list. And what I discovered over time was several different episodes, I call them episodes with several different tasks of kill tasks, was that these were individuals that were part of the network and a message was being sent. They had done something wrong or not done what they were supposed to or just pissed somebody off. And I was sent in to take them out. And there would be no record of this. And how that works, I don't know. In one case, I remember doing what I was supposed to do. But then I believe one of my kill alters, who's rather, was rather 
wild. As a matter of fact, I call her the wild one. She had some rather unique programming, was very extremely immature, and had a very bizarre program. And she, I believe, she went off programming. And at the site of the original kill, took out somebody she wasn't supposed to. I can't verify that. I only have a piece of this memory. But they sent in what appeared to be, I guess, a fixer. And I was there present in this altar, this young altar, and the fixer was dealing with what this altar referred to as consequences, which that's what she called the kills, was consequences. So yeah, it was really a mixed bag for me, but it seems to me that my, as far as one-on-one kill situations, that those were individuals within the network that were being taken out. Mm-hmm. And how were they typically taken out? Did you poison them or shoot them? Right. Well, <laughs> there's a variety, believe it or not. Guns were used. I don't recall, other than in training, knife work. It literally, uh, this gets really sick, dismemberment to get rid of the bodies. I was hmm. trained, and I believe that took place in this facility outside of Tucson. And when I say me, I mean an altar. It's not me that you're talking to, but it was an altar personality. I had really messed up, as if not all of them were messed up. They are, but an altar I call She-29, and there's a reason I named her that. I won't go into all that detail, but she was the darkest and rawest and most vicious of the altars. She was almost like an incarnation of the programmers and the sadists. Very powerful, dark spiritual energy. And she used S&M. She would get in a situation with seduce or a situation that was set up for someone, for example, erotic asphyxiation. And in the midst of that, they would, in one case, she would take them out. They thought they were going to be released at some point. Instead, she choked them, is Hmm. is what happened, you know, didn't stop. And then there was another kill altar, altar 14, who was very, honestly, when she held the body, when I relived her holding the body in deep, deep programming, it it was incredible. She was very strong. She would crush windpipe if she could get a hold. She was, had a very deep control over the body, the physical body. And she wasn't emotionless, but she wasn't very emotional either. So there was really a wide variety of kill alders placed in. And then the only one that I never really understood what they did, I would meet internally. It's kind of hard to explain, but in a system, I followed her through one of the systems and she kept a distance. She showed me who she was but she wouldn't let me get close. And I never really figured out what her MO, what her methods were. Wow. Wow. So with so many alters, I mean, I guess I would ask, how many times do you think you were used in this capacity? How many targets do you think you extinguished? You know, I really don't know. Obviously, it's more than (laughs) than I would care to remember if there's any at all. But I, I honestly don't know. A person helped me with that years ago, but I don't think those numbers were accurate. They mm-hmm. were, 
I think they were higher than what they really are. But I also was working on a team level. I was united with groups. And so not only for kill, but for other things as well, just kind of getting into places, getting things, getting things done, carrying information around and handing it off to other people, that kind of thing. So I really don't know. Right. Is it fair to say a dozen or probably more than that? I would say, yeah, yeah at least. Hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, if you think about it, what's the point of creating? Yeah. Putting the time, money and energy in. So, yeah. You made the investment. You got to use the asset. Exactly. And some of it was more like, like I have memories of programming with hierarchy of the Mormon church. And some of that was more like being involved in a situation that was me supplying something for taking out a bunch of people. So I wasn't hands-on, but I was part of the plan, some aspect of the plan. Right. Wow. Just wild stuff. And in terms of targets, you talk about it in the book, but apparently you were programmed to target some alternative researchers like Dr. Truott and also Dr. Stephen Greer. I think this audience would be more familiar with Dr. Stephen Greer, but can you tell them a little bit about the story behind the Greer scenario? Obviously, it didn't happen. Right. I believe that was Alter 14. I had an altar that was very devoted to him. I called her Greer's girl. Huh. I'm not even sure, Greg, if I ever even met this guy in person. Okay. I mean, I did in deep, deep programming. I went to one of his presentations in Denver. It was a bold, bold move. And I sat in the audience not very far back. And what was really interesting is I kept feeling Greer's girl was there. And then Alter 14 would push in. And the feeling of alternating between that devotion of Greer's girl and alternating back into wanting to kill him. I mean, really, just I want the guy to disappear. Was so intense. <laughs> I can only imagine how this looked. So I think I was like five or six rows back. And this was before the talk started and he came up to the front. He had this like entourage around him, bodyguards. And yeah, it was, it's nauseating quite honestly. And I guess my face and my focus kept shifting. And I noticed that there was a guy standing to the left of him I'm facing him and there was a guy, a bodyguard type guy standing to the left. And when I took my eyes off Greer and looked at the bodyguard, the bodyguard was staring at me and he leaned into another guy and whispered to him. And the guy walked to the end of my row and stood there. Hmm. So I don't think it was a recognition thing. I think that the energy that was coming off me was so strong that this guy thought I was a risk. Yeah, I really do. Wow. And I went to confront this guy because I was so confused back then. And he did a book signing. And when the person in front of me stepped away and I stepped up to the table, I wasn't really going to confront what my memories or anything were. I just, I've said it publicly. I shouldn't say this publicly, but I don't believe he's what he seems to be. <laughs> okay. I'll just say that. Well, I'm with you on that. In fact, oh, good. over okay. the course of... Over the course of this show's 13 years, I've only really gotten into 
argumentative, dramatic episodes with two people, and Dr. Stephen Greer is one of them. I've heard other researchers describe Dr. Greer as a discarded Rockefeller asset, yep. and it seems like that term discarded might have been planned to be a bit more on the nose. I think so. And, you know, there was a time way back when I'm jumping off of the Denver story. Let me just say that when I stepped up, he was very uncomfortable with me. Now, that doesn't mean he knew me. I was still rather attractive and dressed in a slightly seductive way, I must admit. Hello. And he had a hard time keeping eye contact with me. He kept looking down and he dismissed me. I asked him a question about what did I ask him? I can't even remember now, but it was, it was slightly, you know, confrontational, not like aggressive, but just, well, what do you think of this? And how do you explain that? And he dismissed me fast. And I was a wreck. I mean, I was so, can I say the F word? Yeah, please. (laughs) I was so fucked up after that bad. This was very early deprogramming. I think this was 2010. And I intentionally had driven to Denver and got a hotel room that was 10 miles away because I was afraid of myself around him. So I went out to the parking lot and I called one of my support guys from Salt Lake. It was the second guy with Truat because Truat was part of helping me realize that I wasn't insane and that my memories weren't crazy. And I called this other guy. He kind of let me do that for like a year, year and a half after I met them. And I just ranted. I mean, it was pitch black. There was nobody else in this massive parking lot sitting in the car. And I was hysterical. And I drove back to the hotel room. And this was a very poignant episode for me because I, when I came in my hotel room door, there was the bathroom door and the bathroom was on the right, but there was a vanity with a big mirror on the left. And as I walked through, I glanced over to the mirror on the left and I kid you not, Greg, it wasn't even me. I don't know mm. who it was. And I had been tripped out so bad that altars were surfacing. And I don't know if you guys know this, but there are very amazing can be very amazing changes. You can have altars where you don't change anything physically. But when you've got full entity possession running an altar, you can have significant changes. It almost appears as if your facial structure can change, your eye color can change, even your hair color. Because it's like this, gosh, I don't even know how to really describe it, but there's this spiritual aspect. There's this otherworldly aspect because of the entities involved, which the entities are really the first line of handlers with the altars. The physical handlers are the second line, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it startled me. I stepped, I had gone past it and I stopped and turned around and went back and it kind of shifted me back to my self-awareness. And I had to call a friend and talk it out. I was actually a little suicidal at that Mm. point, which a lot of that would kick off when I was severely triggered in, in deep deprogramming, but I was programmed to him and I have so-called memories of him and I together. And I'm not sure those are actually physical memories. I believe they are programming memories. But when I looked into, he wrote a book about, and he talked about his upbringing and there's some very telltale signs in my opinion. Um, Really? Oh yeah. A sister, a twin, I believe, that drowned. 
um, extreme poverty, like hunger, all kinds of things that were very suspect to me. And it's my opinion, this is my opinion, and I believe I've written this in the book, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he was MKUltra and that he was designed exactly for what he does. And I believe even in Denver at the thing, it was like, wow, there's a lot of people around him. Why does he need so many people around him? <laughs> you know, wow. I mean, this is a big guy and he bragged, even in Denver, he bragged about what he could bench lift while he's up on stage, you know? Yeah, I know. He loves to talk about himself like that. Yeah. Hmm. So, but why so many people? And that was suspect to me that it seems like he's being controlled and handled. And that's just my opinion. Yeah, well, that's, it sounds good to me. I mean, it sounds valid to me. And well, the idea let me, let me say this. Sure. Let me say this, because there's another use of taking people out. Okay, we in this conspiracy community often think that if someone dies, that it's the bad guys taken out a good guy. Well, I have another perspective in some cases. That's very true. Very, very true. And it happens all the time, unfortunately. You know, I could list an arm's length of heroes in the last, you know, 40, 50 years. But there's another side to this. And I believe this was why my programming was to Greer. This is my opinion of why I was programmed to him and had a kill program to him. If I took him out after everything he did, everybody would believe he was on the up and up. Mm. So there's another way to credit individuals that aren't really what they seem. If somebody takes them out in a very public way, it looks like, oh, wow, he must have been telling the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it seems like his primary purpose is to tell people in the alternative community that all the aliens and spirits and entities, multidimensional or otherwise, they're all good and they're all here to help us. And if we can all just come together and collectively be ready, whatever that means, they will come to our aid. Exactly. And that was really the telltale sign. Plus, this was really interesting, and it brings in the Truot aspect for me. So Truot was another case of being programmed to him. I also believed that I had a relationship to him, which I didn't. And his case was he exited the Mormon church, the LDS church, and he started talking about them big time. Matter of fact, he did tell me at one point that they called him in. I think it was right before they excommunicated him and basically threatened him if he didn't shut up. So there's a lengthy section of the book, which I really recommend. It just blew me away. It actually blew me away when I discovered all these pieces about him related to JFK and then John Jr., who was also taken out. And Truat was indirectly connected, well, actually directly, with information for John Jr. And it would be shortly after that that John was killed. He supplied information that he inadvertently had gotten from a, an old client. It's a long, super convoluted story, and I, I won't even try to do it here, but it's in the book. But when my program got kicked off, to go to Truat and to take out his family. One of the kickoff points was to jump in my car in Taos, drive down to Roswell, New Mexico, 
okay, from Taos, New Mexico to Roswell, go to the UFO Museum and pull out, they had a little sitting room with VHS, you could watch all these videos, and I pull out Stephen Greer and pop it in. Huh. And I'm set off. I'm ready to cruise back up to Salt Lake because I had met someone. And unbeknownst to me, at the time, there was a kill program to Truat for his family to get him in line. And the person that I met that was up there that would introduce me to him was also MKUltra and had the weapons, had a place for me to stay. I mean, everything was a go. But I was awake enough to know that there was something terribly wrong. I would say things to Truat like, I don't want to do this once we met. And he would say, he understood. He's Christian. And he was fearless. Honestly, he was fearless back then. But it was interesting to me, and it would take me years in deprogramming to discover the similarities between my programming to Greer and my programming to Truat in a very amorous way, sexual, a lot of sexual energy. I was in love with them, so to speak. And here I had never, I'd never heard of this man Truat, you know, in my surface life. I never met him. So, yeah, it was really, really fascinating. It was a very stalker mentality. Yeah, yeah. Loads of stuff in my journals about them so that when the kill would happen, it would look like a crazy stalker woman. Well, absolutely. That's kind of the archetype. Even Mark David Chapman, it's like this obsession becomes a desire to kill at the final moment. Right. It's like up into that point, it's like, I like this guy's work. I have all the albums. And right. I'm a huge, huge, huge fan. And then something Damn. happens when they get close and suddenly they're killing their idol. Right. And I think that's there's actually two altars there, in my opinion, meaning I saw that with myself. In, in some of the cases, I was in a sex altar that was just to begin the process. And at some point, I'm switched into the kill altar. Wild. And see, this can be done remotely. You don't need a handler in the room. And that's the really scary part is where the remote technologies are with all this. Mm -hmm. This last thing I wanted to bring up. So another strange thing in the book is breathing underwater. You <laughs> mentioned screen You mentioned screen memories related to this kind of thing, actual memories of being trained and conditioned in breathing pods. You even write that, as when we were younger, this breathe underwater altar draws it in very gently. Her consciousness shows us that she was taught this by them, those we had come to know as alien beings. As time progressed, we understand these others to be one and the same as the entities and demons that we have encountered throughout our lives since our first consciously remembered experience at five years old. And then... You even go in on the appendix of the book to produce scanned documents relating to the, quote, feasibility of liquid breathing man. And my ebook reader was a little too small to really read those scanned documents clearly. But what is this about? What evidence is there to support that man can be adapted, trained or conditioned to breathe water or liquid? And what is your experience with this? Well, yeah, I was so grateful that that document was sent to me by someone after I had produced the first two books. And just to let your listeners know, they may already know this, but he's referring when he says we and so forth. And when I refer to aliens, this was from the original two books and I didn't change the language. I just added many 
updates and so forth. I wanted to leave it as it was. Right. But after I talked about that, a friend, a matter of fact, I think it was Lana Freeland that found this. This is a 1969 document. And it was released, I believe, in 1977. And the concept behind this wasn't so much they were proving that there could be liquid breathing. It was proving that the Navy was researching this, that they wanted to come up with something. And what I didn't include was, again, after I published the first two books, several years after, these articles started showing up of scientific materials that scientists had created that allowed, it wasn't you know using tanks with oxygen, it was allowing divers to pull the water in through this little small thing, okay? and it would release the oxygen into them. So the document was put there to show that this started in 69 at the very least, that the desire to create this was something actually sincere. And then the subsequent, in the last 10 years, there were a couple of devices that were written about by these scientists that had developed something that could, and the whole concept was to create a device that allowed people to go into the water without tanks and to be able to breathe. Damn. <laughs> um, and for me, I believe I'm still not, I have to be honest, hundred percent clear on all this. When I wrote those books, that altar was overwhelmingly strong. She had been deeply programmed with, and there's a collage named water in the books that addresses part of this. There were films that I was programmed with in my youth, and then there were things I put in the collage that were regarding the Navy. And there was an episode in young adulthood where I was in a very huge pool, probably a 40-footer. It was very deep. It was a gradual from a shallower end to deep. And it was also regards breathing in the water. And now I don't have any idea of whether you know, I had a device on, it didn't seem like I did. And there were two other people in the pool in this so-called training session. So I really don't know that, you know, was this water not typical water? Was this something else they had created? I mean, yeah. I, I honestly, I don't know, but I will say this, going back to the entity aspect, certain altars of mine, not the breathing underwater altar necessarily, but even other altars, when I was in full-on programming, when I was fully under, everything was intact, there were no glitches. When these entities, when these altars are pulled up, they're run by certain entities. It's very, very absolute to me that there are entities that have abilities that are beyond what our human abilities are. So is there a relationship there? Is it possible? And that's all I'm asking. Is it possible that when you have an entity running an altar in full-on possession, is it possible to somehow change and affect the physiology of the human? I mean, we've heard about this. In MPD, you can have an altar that's diabetic and then the other one isn't. You can right. have... I mean, there's actually physiological changes. So is it possible, you know, that they're doing things 
that they understand things, that they've achieved things that are not only a physical change, but it's very much being run by an esoteric level. Yeah. And yeah. that these entities are bringing something in. So <laughs> I, I still haven't resolved it for myself, honestly. I don't know that it'll ever be resolved, but part of it was for the trauma of drowning. There were cases where I believe that they made me stay in, but they were always trying to get me to breathe it. And so I don't know. I believe that I was part of some kind of experimentation, whether successful or not, I surely can't say. <laughs> well, it's very interesting. The mind is a powerful tool and or weapon, and I'm glad we could fit that in, but that's about all the time we have. I think they're going to kick me out of this hotel room any minute, but it was <laughs> definitely a pleasure talking to you again. I appreciate you sharing these things, and it's incredible that you're able to have recovered like you have. Any parting words to leave people with about the book or links to give them if they want to follow up or support your work, maybe future plans as well? Sure, sure. And thank you for having me on again. It was a pleasure talking with you again, Greg. The book is Our Life Beyond MKUltra, Then and Now. That's the new version. It is published by Logosophiabooks.com. And you can find it in other places, I think on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, but I would appreciate if people would support the publishers. These guys are awesome. They're a small group. So go to Logo Sophia Books and buy it there if you want to have a look at it. And my WordPress site is still available, ourlifebeyondmkultra.wordpress.com. Lots of free information there. And you can look at the collages in color, or you can, you'll find a link to the book there as well. I love it. And I will include those links in the show notes for easy access. But Thanks again. I appreciate your time and the work you do. Keep fighting the good fight and take care out there. You as well, Greg. Thank you. All right, Elisa E., ladies and gentlemen, with another memorable trip down MK Ultra Lane. Also, another new cover on the THC intro. This one was from Lindahl Discant. She has been a Plus member since 2017 and has music on her YouTube channel and website, lindahl.com. L-Y-N-D-O-L. -L. And good stuff. I always appreciate a new version of that song. Send them all in if that's your forte. Hmm. But I do consider Elisa E. one of the best out there who can speak from personal experience when it comes to having this sort of trauma-based mind control background. Clearly, Alana Freeland thinks similarly to have done the foreword. I can't imagine living with these types of experiences and then trying to put my life back together as she has. I also think the collages in the book are a good way to drop some hints and name some names without really having to get into the legal weeds. Not everything that's true would you want to have to prove in a court of law, especially this sort of stuff, you know what I mean? But these sorts of stories are out there with very few media outlets, if that's what we are, paying attention. Clearly, as we talked about, the technology and techniques have gotten more sophisticated over time, and a lot of the methodology has been mainstreamed to affect the general public. So hearing her story is more than just an interesting tale, I would say. And of course, she has an even deeper understanding of the subconscious and spiritual attachments through these experiences, too. She actually said a few things that sounded just like Dr. Tom Zinzer. A wide range of different experiences can get these entities attached to us or even unknowingly invited in. 
And most people go their whole lives without ever doing any kind of spirit work. And who knows what problems and ailments they deal with could be lifted by getting at some of these lingering things in our subconscious or astral body or whatever it is we got under the hood. <laughs> so I liked it. And if you want to get the new book, do go to Logo Sophia Press rather than Amazon. It's always a good practice, but in cases like this, even more so. Or go to our website, ourlifebeyondmkultra.wordpress.com, also in the show notes. If you liked the first hour and you're still not a Plus member, I don't know what you're doing. It's time to upgrade and hear the full episodes. Today's got into the THC interview that actually made it into the re-release of her book. Her thoughts on the viability of cloning tech. You know, cloning tech sounds obviously very far out there, but I have seen too many side-by-sides of Joe Biden where they really look nothing like each other, and I'm totally convinced that they have at least three Bidens. But anyway, we also talked about astral projection technology, bizarre rites and rituals in these programming experiences, Elisa's memories of splitting and entity courtship, killing underlings to serve the cabal in the afterlife, Elisa's thoughts on adrenochrome and its use as an industrial product on a global scale, the plan to incrementally get culture to accept cannibalism and pedophilia, COVID vaccines, consequences for the soul, spirit, and life after death, alien abduction experience and trauma screen memories, the influence of elementals, and the feasibility of liquid breathing man. That was such an odd thing that came up in her book several times, including those documents in the appendix. I might actually cut that into the free show, too. Who knows? TheHiresideChats.com. Come on in. The water is more than fine. And in higher side news, I know I sound a bit weird on the show lately. It's because these hotels have a terrible echo and I'm on a USB mic that is more mobile friendly than my typical setup. And I have an okay tool to deal with that, but it's not exactly perfect. It's better than hearing it raw, but not as good as we could or should be. Now I can record from home. That is an important step, but this house has these big, fancy 12-foot ceilings, which are awesome. Never had anything like this before. But they also echo really badly, probably worse than these hotel rooms even. Also probably because it's largely still just an empty room. So I'm going to have to do some soundproofing, which can happen as soon as things slow down. Top priority was just getting the five shows of the month out to you. One yesterday, one today. We're at the 30th. We did it. Moved across the country and didn't even take a break. I don't want to pat myself on the back too hard, but I'm glad to have kept the streak going. Lots of plus people were kind enough to write me and say, dude, don't worry about it. Take a month off. And I appreciate that, but it's not the deal we made. People have to work through all sorts of less than ideal situations. I can too. So I need to get off this USB mic and set up the rig and do some soundproofing. And we will be right back to where I want to be. Thanks for bearing with me. And of course, before we go, let's look at the meetup calendar. HiresideMeetups.com. Anyone can add an event if you don't hear of one near you. Coming up on deck, though, today, there's one in Asheville, North Carolina. May 6th, there's one in Dublin, Ireland. 
Also May 6th, we have the Stay Golden event in Sedona, Arizona, and the Conspiracy Theorizers at High Springs Brewing in High Springs, Florida. May 13th, the Great Basin Bellwether Meetup in Elko, Nevada. And May 27th, the Truther Discussion at the Trails Cafe in Los Angeles. So only five events on the calendar for May. I hope we can at least double that. Come on in. Throw your hat in the ring and meet your new best friends. No risk, all reward. But that's that. Thanks for listening, as always. Big thanks to Elisa E. for coming back. I've done my part. Your move, MK Ultra Handlers, Secret Assassin Programmers, and Mass Mind Manipulators. Your fucking move. You know the plan has always been to hack your brain. MK Ultra's trying to drive you insane. They'll explode your heart if they think that's what it takes. You think I'm answering the phone? Well, I ain't. You gotta keep the curtains drawn Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not You should tape the mail slot And baby, if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that The trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become Don't you see what's going on? Well, now you know You're better keeping on your own Cause you can see the masters lie too much Oh, baby, you can only trust yourself And if you think the system's out of touch It is and you can only trust yourself I hope you know the elite aren't your friends They'll suck out everything from you in the end And if for some reason you think I might be wrong I wonder where you got that opinion from You gotta keep the curtains strong Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not You should tape the mail slot And baby, if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that The trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become They want a pat down and a swap Don't you see what's going on? Well now you know You're better keeping on your own Cause you can see the map does lie too much oh baby you can only trust yourself and if you think the system's out of touch it is and you can only trust yourself think that these problems are small or maybe they aren't registering at all now they know you're naive and vulnerable
unbelievable. You won't believe all of the stunts that they'll pull. Cause you can see the masters lie too much. Oh, baby, you can only trust yourself. And if you think the system's out of touch, it is, and you can only trust yourself. Cause you can see the masters lie too much. Oh, baby, you can only trust yourself. And if you think the system's out of touch, it is, and you can only trust yourself.